So Christ is the fullness of who, when we look at Jesus, Jesus says to us, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We've seen God, which is an amazing, amazing thought. But what does that mean for us? And who are we? Well, we're going to unpack some of this stuff. Um, I wonder if any of you have ever thought about what the world would be like if everyone was like you. I know for a small minority of us in the room, that fills us with a warm sense of joy, that thought. But probably for the majority in the room, that thought fills you with a sense of horror. If everyone in the world was like you, uh, it would be a, an unusual kind of place. The truth is, we're all really, really different. Six and a half billion, maybe more than that now, I've lost count, uh, people in this world. And there are no two people the same. And even as you go back through history, there are no two people who have been the same. Yeah, we're shaped by our culture, we're shaped by our parenting, we're shaped by uh, the systems and the places that we grow up in, all those sort of things do kind of give us patterns of behavior and thinking that often is similar, but actually every single person on this planet throughout the whole of human history, I believe is created, that's the important thing, they're created by God, no one's an accident, God is involved, he sees our bodies unformed as they're being woven together in our mother's wombs. We're created and we're unique. Every single one of us is unique. So let me ask you another question. Have you ever felt misunderstood by anyone? That probably would be all of us. If you're married, have you ever felt misunderstood? Let's not go there. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. But we can be misunderstood by a spouse, by a friend, by a teacher, a colleague, uh, people we work with, all sorts of different contexts. Because misunderstandings happen so quickly. Because the way we see the world and the way that we understand things is often so different from those around us. And the way we respond, the way we articulate things, or the fact that we don't articulate, those of us who are uh, very impetuous and some of us here are kind of great reflectors. And often in the world, the world spends a lot of time, education, systems, all those sort of things about trying to make you better trying to fix the bits of you that are perceived as not very strong. And there's, there's an element of helpful things in that. We all have gaps in our lives, the ways we think, the ways we work. There are ways where, as some of you, it will come as a surprise, but um, a lot of us here aren't perfect in the room. There are gaps in our personalities. There are ways we think that perhaps aren't always helpful. And we can spend a lot of energy and time, and, and that, there's, there's value in that, about trying to fix those things. But sometimes we forget that there are gifts and character traits and personalities that we all carry that actually are created by God for incredible value and worth. And actually, God wants those things to excel so you can truly become the person that you are supposed to be. Rather than constantly feeling you're letting other people down or you're a failure, maybe God's wanting to say to you, but this about you I love. And this about you is a unique gift that the world needs to see so that my glory can be shown. Someone once said, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Some of you may have even read that book. Uh, I'm not sure what planet they were on when they wrote that book, but often I'm out, out and about with friends and family or in the queue at Tesco, um, and some of the people I meet seem to be come from really, really different planets than my own. That's the reality of life, isn't it? We meet people and we think, whoa, what, how do you think like that? What, what on earth do you think that for? But Genesis 1, 27 says this, God created man, mankind, man and female in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So you and I, as men and women, we are created in the image of God. And that's a really, really, really important theological truth. We are created in the image of God. 
It's a basic principle of truth. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Reminds me of that terrible joke. What did God say after he created Adam? I can probably do better. Um, That's a really bad joke. Um, But, you know, God created male and female in his image. That's really important. Together, we are a representation of God in part. And we, as men and women, are part of that reflection of God's character. We don't carry that all in one person. I am not, and you'll know this very well, I am not the full reflection of the image of God. But as we gather together and as our hearts become healed and transformed and we become more yielded to who God's called us to be, together we do begin to reflect him. I love the passage in Romans 12, 4 to 5, because it's good to ask the question, well, why are we all so different? Well, Romans 12, 4 to 5, this is from the Amplified Bible, says this. For as in one physical body we have many parts, and all of these parts do not have the same function or use, so we, numerous as we are, are one body in Christ, and individually we're parts of one another, mutually dependent on one another. The church, then, I believe is supposed to be a body with loads of different parts, loads of different temperaments, loads of different personalities that come together to bring a sense of fullness, of richness, of diversity, that that's a really, 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 really good thing, a really, really important thing. But the truth is often we become frustrated at our inadequacies or we become afraid of being who we are or like I was preaching last time, we wear so many masks to protect ourselves, to hide from others, We try and wear other people's shoes because we lose sight of who we really are. Or we feel that my life doesn't have as much worth or value as that person. That person over there who's kind of in the body is a real mouth. Well, they're brilliant. Or that person over there who kind of the practical hands, they're amazing. But me, I'm not sure what part of the body I am. It's possibly one of the unspeakable parts. I'm, I'm not sure I'm used for anything. And it's so easy for us to feel like that as body, as church. But that is not God's heart for you. We can so quickly become discouraged or uncertain or afraid or not sure what our part is in the big scheme of God's plan. And that certainly was my story. If you heard a couple of weeks ago, you'll have heard me share that. Lost sight of who I was. Kept trying to be other people in order to fit in or in order to find a value or to be accepted or to be loved. And we become filled with a sense of self-doubt. And it can grow to a place of self-hatred that we actually begin to hate who we are or who we've become because we don't really know who we are. And we ask that question, Lord, who am I? What am I here for? It's a real challenge. And God wants us tonight, I think, to encourage us of all our different personalities, all our different types, to recognize that differences are great. They're a real gift. I remember when I was 19, as a kind of naive 19-year-old, moving into a, a student house. I was living with four, four Christian friends uh, that I'd kind of got to know quite well, I thought. And, and initially was incredibly excited at the thought of living with four other Christian friends in this kind of dynamic house where we would change the world, we would change the city, Bristol would never be the same again. And I was with like-minded friends, so everything was going to be really cool. And then suddenly you move in with people and they go from being lovely 2D Christians to these 3D monsters that you had no idea. Really complex, multifaceted personalities and temperaments, each uniquely different from my own. There was Craig, who I loved as a real brother. And he had this love of early morning quiet times, one based around 
painfully tuneless singing, deafeningly loud in the shower, obscene hours of the morning when normal humans are supposed to be asleep. And he had a completely horizontal attitude to life, so he never got stressed about anything, which stressed everybody in the house because he was so horizontal. And then there was Johnny, who had this mantle of authority and power and kind of this ability to make you hoover the hallway just by looking at you, even though you had done it yesterday, uh, and, and gave you the feeling that you, you were lucky to have the chance to do it. He just had this air about him that he would just kind of terrorize us. And then there was Carrie. Carrie had her lists. I mean, like, so many lists about everything that she was sticking in various places around the house. Um, and this kind of sense of order and neatness. An inscrutable ability to sort out the bills, which I and Craig had never any ability to, and I never knew where I'd put the bills. And then there was Kath. Kath had this, she was so generous and smiley and happy all the time, and she would invite anyone and everyone into our house, no matter what time of the night or day, and feed them all my food, um, waste and strays, and always cheerful no matter what happened to her. And, all this, and at the centre of this was me. Sometimes bewildered, occasionally laughing, but often confounded and traumatised by these people who I just couldn't understand the world that they seemed to be living in. And yet we were united by this desire to serve and to love and to live together as part of Christ's body. And having to learn to live with people who are so different from you, many of you here will recognise, is a real, real challenge. But that was the beginning of my journey towards a simple conclusion that just because people are different from you, doesn't make them wrong, or you right, or the other way around. That actually, God loves variety, and understanding that we together are made in the image of God is a real uh, important thing for us to, to grasp. So quite a few of you said you've done personality preference type things. They're quite helpful. They're kind of fun. You can feel a bit boxed in by them. But as early as about 2,500 years B.C., um, there was a bloke called Hippocrates, some of you will have heard of him, who tried to help, he was trying to understand human beings. I've got something we could put up on the screen here to try and help way through some of this. So he was a kind of, I guess, an early scientist. And he, he, he decided that humanity was split into four basic types. And if you've, if you've, many of you will have heard of this. He, um, he based them on the different fluids in the body. So he looked at the different fluids in the body, blood. This is going somewhere. We will get to some theology soon. Blood black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. Sorry if you've not had your tea yet. And he believed, as many doctors after him believed, that the kind of different personality types were affected by the levels of these fluids in your body. But he came up with four personality types linked to these fluids, which interestingly, some two and a half thousand years later, formed the basic heart of pretty much most personality profiling and understanding of people. So we'll stick them on the screen here. We've got, there we go, temperament. So choleric, phlegmatic, sanguine, and melancholic. Choleric um, often is defined as people who are quite strong and confident. They're leaders. Um, the word choleric often in our language refers to people who are quite angry or aggressive. Um, phlegmatic, that's to do with phlegm. <laughs> They're people who are quite um, stable, who... Um, are quite kind of consistent and reliable and they get the job done. Sanguines are your kind of people, people, your extroverts, you're outgoing, you know, they love people, they're the life and soul of the party. And then you're melancholic, which again in our temperament, in, in our kind of society, is often seen as a negative word. 
people who are kind of very inward-looking. But actually, melancholic is, is the gift of being a deep thinker, quite opposite from the sanguine, who might be quite shallow. That's me. Uh, melancholics are often reflective. They search the deep things. They're kind of very... Uh, faithful in, in relationships and friendships. So he came up with these different, these different personality types and, and listed the four types. And some of the personality types you'll do, they're kind of really drawn on those different temperaments uh, and, and you see different personalities. Of course, the reality is none of us go into one of those boxes. We often fall between two or a mixture of some of them. Okay, so that, that was Hippocrates two and a half thousand years ago. But what about the Bible? If we're made in the image of God... We've got those four personality types that make up humanity and obviously a blend of all those things. But if we are made in the image of God, well then, are those things in God? Because where do those temperaments come from? Where do those characteristics come from? Well, this is where it's really interesting to start looking at the Bible and trying to understand what Scripture teaches us. There's um, a couple of places in Scripture uh, several places, in fact, that talk about the, uh, the face of God, the, the four faces of God. Um, and you can read about them in Ezekiel 1.10, and you can read about them in Revelation 4.7. And the four faces are faces that are often depicted in churches. So if we whack them up, we've got the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle. If you want to look up these passages, I'm not gonna, I haven't got time to look at them now. But Ezekiel 1.10 and Revelation 4.7. And so you have in these images, you have in these passages, Bible passages, God represented on his throne, uh, or, or kind of the presence of God and the fullness of God. And you have these slightly mystical, slightly trippy kind of images of the four faces, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man and the face of an eagle. And somehow together, they seem to represent the fullness of who God is. That's interesting, isn't it? Four animals, well, three animals and the face of a man. Some, you know, you might think, well, are they angels? Are they cherubim? Or were the scripture writers just are they eating too much cheese? What's going on there? Well, I believe that these four images, these four faces, are, spo- are trying to show us something about the nature and the characteristic of God. We've been thinking about Jesus. We heard that scripture that the fullness of God is found in Jesus. That it's all about Jesus. And we want to look at Jesus. We've spent the last series looking at the different aspects of who Jesus is. This journey for me began a few years ago where I became a Christian. Um, I encountered the Father heart of God for the first time. I kind of grew up in formalized tradition of worship, which was great. And I'd really encountered God at many times. But it came as quite a revelation knowing that God was a father who actually loved me. And I had quite a lot of healing, as I shared a couple of weeks ago when I preached God wanted to work on my heart quite a bit, and he very much revealed himself as Father, the Father heart of God. And then, you know, not long after, I had a real encounter with the Holy Spirit, and I really experienced the, the reality of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit impacting my life. But a few years later, although I came to recognize that I knew Jesus and accepted Jesus as Lord, I wasn't really sure how well I knew Jesus. I wasn't really sure if I understood him, because if Scripture says the fullness of God is in Jesus, and if Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I was trying to understand, well, Jesus, do I really know you? I know about you. I've encountered aspects of you, but I'm not sure I know you in all your fullness. It's a bit like if you look at a gem, a diamond. If you look at it from one angle, it will shine. If you look at it from another angle, you see a whole new uh, facet to it, a whole new side to it. And I felt like that was a journey I wanted to do with Jesus. And as we look in Scripture, 
there's a whole revelation of the nature of Jesus. And interestingly, we have these four faces. There are many messianic um, verses that point in the Old Testament towards this Jesus, the Messiah who's going to come and save. And there are four particular key messianic promises about the Messiah who would come, Jesus who would come. And there are four branches. And these are the four branches. I'll give you the references. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Jesus the king. Then we've got Zechariah 3.8. This is another messianic prophetic verse. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I, says the Lord, am going to bring my servant the branch. Jesus the servant. Then we've got Zechariah 6.12. Tell him what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. What the Messiah who's a man. And then the final one, Jeremiah 33, 15 and 16. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what's just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safely. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, God, our righteous Savior. So here we've got Jesus, who is God. So that's interesting, isn't it? We've got a lion. We've got a king, we've got an ox, we've got a servant, we've got a man, we've got a man, we've got an eagle, and we've got God. Now, the observance amongst you, who I'm particularly thinking of the mathematicians here, will know how many Gospels there are. Can anyone answer my question? (laughs) It's not a trick question. Four, well done, four Gospels. Have you ever thought, why are there four Gospels? Is it because, you know, it's quite helpful having four Gospels? Well, of course, some of you will have looked at this and studied before. There are four Gospels. And they're different authors, we know that. But have you ever wondered why there are four? And was it just because, well, there weren't five and there was one more than three? Well, I think Scripture is incredible. I think Scripture is the inspired Word of God. I think it's given to us for a reason. We as a church define ourselves as a Word and Spirit church. We love the Holy Spirit. But the Bible, when you begin to study it and, and look at it, you realize there's layers of teaching and inspiration. The Bible is not just a load of old books that have been chucked together by some hillbilly who thought, well, let's put those ones in. Or four, I like that number, let's put four in. It's God who inspired the word of God, who inspired the early church fathers to understand which scriptures, which passages, which letters were the ones that were supposed to be in there in order that we, 2,000 years later, can go, no way, that's amazing. Because God wants to reveal his nature through his word. Jesus, the living word. And so we're given four Gospels. Why have we got four Gospels? Well, it's really interesting that often through church history, Matthew's Gospel has been uh, given the kind of uh, the image of a lion. Because really Matthew's Gospel is all about the kingdom. It's all about Jesus being the king of kings. He is the king of the kingdom. And then what about those genealogies? Have you ever read the genealogies in the, in the Bible or do you kind of skip over those? And you wonder what they're there for and are they there for any reason or just you know, a bit of background knowledge? Well, when you look at Matthew's genealogy, it's different from the other one. The genealogy in Matthew's gospel goes all the way back from David's heir to the throne, back to, from David right the way through to Abraham, through the line out to Joseph. 
And what it shows is that Jesus literally was the son of David, that he was, he was heir to the legal throne of David. So not only was he the king of kings, he was genuinely the king by royal ascent from King David. Jesus truly is the king. He is the lion of Judah. He's the king of kings. What about Mark's gospel? Why is that there? Well, Mark's gospel is often defined as being the servant's gospel. Uh, and so often, if you look at really old Bibles um, in, in ancient churches, they often have it um, decorated with a picture of an ox. Why is it the servant's gospel? Well, it's actually the shortest gospel. The word immediately is in it 41 times. Immediately did Jesus did this. Immediately he went there. Immediately did this. There was no fuss. He just goes because the servant does his master's bidding. There's no genealogy in it at all because actually the servant's genealogy doesn't matter. He's just there to serve. Mark's gospel is all about what he did rather than what he said. And it shows right the way through the whole of it is a kind of demonstration of what it means to be a servant. So it's referred to as a servant's gospel. And then Luke's gospel. Well, Luke's gospel is an amazing gospel. I love it. It's the kind of gospel that really shows Jesus as man. It shows the humanity of Jesus throughout the whole of that gospel. There's more personal relationships and connections in that gospel than in any other gospel. And a third of those are his encounters with women, which at the time would have been unthinkable. Him as rabbi, him as teacher, him as a man speaking to women. It's kind of all the way through. And then there's one of those genealogies again. But it's different from Matthew's genealogy, which is from Joseph back through the legal one to David. What's Luke's genealogy? Well, it's from uh, Mary's bloodline back to Adam, to show that Jesus truly was the offspring of Adam, fully man. It shows him as the face of God, shown in man. And the last one, the eagle, which leads John's gospel. And John's gospel shows Jesus as divine. It shows the divinity of Jesus. It shows Jesus fully, yes, he's fully man, but actually he's fully God. John's gospel was written to the church, both then and now. And there's more on the divinity of Jesus than any of the other gospels. And it's really, really different from the other three gospels, from the synoptic gospels. It focuses on signs. It focuses on miracles. It it focuses on the breaking of God's kingdom supernaturally. And think about it, right at the beginning, Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, starts out before the creation where there was only God, and with God was the Word, and the Word was God. And this Word was Jesus Christ, eternally God of God who became flesh. The Word became flesh. It's saying Jesus was there right at the beginning, before creation, because he is God. He was God, he is God. He always will be God. John wants to convince the readers that Jesus Christ is divine, that he is fully incarnate God-man, both God and man. And in fact, at chapter 20, verse 30, says this, writing of his own book, he says, These stories are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is deeply prophetic. It's powerful. It kind of... It's a reflective gospel. So, okay, why have I bothered to go into all this? Why have I done this whole thing? Well, partly because I love it. I mean, I have to be honest. I am not the type of personality that loves Excel spreadsheets. 
because I'm more on the sanguine kind of people thing, but there's something very pleasing about that. And you see God's shape and form as he's trying to reveal his nature and his character and who he is to us as his human beings. And we are made in his image. Say we. We are made in his image. Together we are made in his image. So it's really important to understand, well, what might the image of God look like? Well, we're told. It's a lion, it's an ox, and it's a man, and it's an eagle. It's all of those things. And in Jesus, he is the king, and he's the servant, and he's the man, and he's, the, he's God. But surely those things, they're opposites, right? How do they hang together? How can you be a king and a servant? Well, we see that in Jesus. We sung about it, didn't we, tonight? You're the lion and the lamb. It's this kind of nonsensical, upside-down kingdom of God where you can have a king who gets down on his knees and washes the feet like a slave of his disciples. You can have a man who fully is man and who, I love the passage when I've said before, when he's fasting for 40 days in the Bible, that great bit of understatement where at the end of 40 days it says, and he was hungry. Jesus really did get hungry. Jesus felt pain physically in his body, but he also felt pain deep in his guts. The word used to describe when he sees um, the people harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It's the, the word that's used there is the deep agony in his bowels. Jesus felt pain as he saw people in turmoil. He felt pain physically in his body. He was rejected and he felt that pain. He was man. Don't think he was some kind of gaudy person who kind of was able to put the pain to one side. And, no, he felt pain. He felt rejection. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be thirsty. He suffered and yet remained holy. He was fully, fully man and fully, fully God. He is all those things. So what does it mean for us? Well, I want to show you and for you to begin to understand how glorious you are. Because you are glorious. You must be. Because you're made in the image of God. And God's glorious, right? He's full of glory. He's full of wonder. He's full of light. He's full of power. He's full of imagination, creativity. Anyone who kind of created the stars in, in space or, you know, the, the continents or the Isle of Wight. I don't know what, but God's got to be incredible. Maybe not the Isle of Wight, but, but incredibly creative, imaginative ludicrously, spectacularly so, creating galaxies far beyond even our sight where, that we didn't even know were there until we, invent, we discovered telescopes and invented them can be at sea. It goes on and on, and beauty and incredible things out in space that we haven't even yet discovered because God is constantly unfolding his be- beautiful creation for us. And you are key in all of it, whoever you are, whatever type of person you are. The world needs you. You're part of God's answer for the crisis that we're seeing in our days. You as part of his church, you as part of his bride, are part of God's plan, unfolding plan, to bring salvation and hope and transformation. The world really needs you. Creatives, dreamers, writers, thinkers, builders, planners, reflectors, doers, introverts, extroverts, talkers, listeners, intellectuals, grafters, the sanguines amongst us, the melancholics, the administrators, artists, phlegmatics, clerics, gentle servants, bold, lion-hearted pioneers. You're all equal. You're all vital. You're all needed. 
You're all loved and cherished and vital to God's coming kingdom. See, sometimes in church and in society, we can really laud the gobby people who stand at the front and wave their arms around and look like they're in control. And yet we all know that Mary's in control. (laughs) As administrator here, just held everything together. And Sam, who's working behind the scenes now, and Victoria and Debbie, who just pastorally hold things together, and Peter, who mends everything that I break. People behind the scenes aren't just helpful, they're key in everything that's going on. And yes, a few of us gobby ones on the front, we can be helpful too sometimes, but together we really need each other. And for me as someone who, if anyone knows me, you will know that administration is not my strong point. Detail is not my strong point. And yes, I can try and get better at those things, and I need to, and I think I probably have. But I don't just need a Mary to make me better. I need a Mary because she's key in what God wants to do. Those gifts of administration, those gifts of detail that some of you have are extraordinary. And they're not just sort of helpful and nice. They're a part of God's dream to make this world a better place in areas of finance and business and education, healthcare. Leading, politics, all those sort of areas. God needs you. It's like that old World War II picture, remember? You know, Britain needs you. Well, God needs you. He wants you to become the person who he always dreamed you to be so that you can see his purpose fulfilled through you and in you. We need the sanguines, the people who kind of love to fly in a frenzy of excitement and possibilities and dreams. But we need the melancholics who reflect who challenge, who question, who search the deep things, who probe and who create beautiful things. And we need to honour the phlegmatics, the people who organise, the people who shape and bring definition, often behind the scenes, often quietly, and who see things through, who get them, always get them done, and who understand the need for detail and deliver again and again and again are so reliable. We need the clerics, we need the powerful leaders who will stand up because they know their voice needs to be heard. There's some of you here who've got a voice that needs to be heard. There's a boldness in you, the boldness of the lion of Jesus in you. Because you want to shout for in, against injustice. You want to rail to make a difference in this world. And God wants to use you prophetically. The prophets, the kind of... The eagles amongst us who hear the deep things of God because you soar up in the heavens. Because your passion is just to rest in him and dwell in him and hear the deep things of God that will change the world. God needs you all. And God wants to gather us as people. Creative designers, servant-hearted workers, shakers and movers. Those who love to pray silently and quietly. Those who are planners, those who hold it all behind the scene. You need to be saluted and honoured because we're all called to the party. And without each other, then we're not complete. That's true of us here in this room, but it's true of us across the city, which is why I can stand and honour BCC or All Saints Western or St. John's or Emmanuel or Holy Trinity or Hay Hill. We need to honour those churches and ask for God's blessing on them and for clarity and truth to prevail Because we do need each other. This morning, one of the lecture readings that I'm sure you've all been dwelling in today was from John 17. It's Jesus' prayer. 
seems really appropriate on the day when the 24-7 prayer begins. I was with all the church leaders at lunchtime today. And Jesus prays this really simple prayer. You know, he's, he's, it's, the, it's the Passover. He knows this is kind of one of the last things he's going to really say to his friends in this moment. And he prays for them. What a tender moment. Jesus prays for them and he prays for us. And what's his prayer? Well, he prays that we might all be one. One. Seems a really simple prayer, right? But the truth is, sometimes we find it really hard to be one. Because I don't always get people who love Excel spreadsheets. I don't always love people who are, you know, uh, different from me. Because I don't always understand them. But Jesus is praying that we can be one. And as we create and work in a culture of honor, where we begin to honor the other, and not just honor them, but actually value them and celebrate them, and begin to love the gift that they are, that we can begin to call forth that gift with increasing measure to say, who you are, what you do is really important to God's plan and purpose. We need you to excel in the gifting that God has shaped you to be so that his purpose and plan can come to fruition. Because together we are the representation of God, the image of God, the Imago Deo. And that's what God intended for us to be. Jesus is the king, the servant, man and God. He's the lion. He's the ox. He's a man, shares our humanity, and he's the eagle. I want to pray for us that we can truly step into the, the plan that God has for us. Other people aren't better than you. I want to say that again. Other people aren't better than you. Don't compare yourself to other people. Because that was never God's intention. God wants you to be the best you that's possible. And we really need God's help for that. I need to become more who God intended me to be. I need his grace. I need his healing. I need his forgiveness. I need his strength. I need his wisdom. I need his boldness. And I need to yield to him so that he can make me truly the man that he intended me to be. When he had a plan at the beginning of the dawn of creation, he had a little Tim Buckley in mind. I'm not that full Tim Buckley yet. But I hope to be one day. We all move step by step from glory to glory. And I want to pray for each of us. I really don't want you to pray for you to become Tim Buckley. That will be terrifying. For you to become, insert your name here, fully that person. And we're going to do it as we share communion together, which seems really appropriate. Because though we're many, we're all one body because we all share one bread. And as we take communion, we're going to come forward and we're going to have um, some bread and some wine together. We come to Jesus the lion. We come to Jesus the ox. We come to Jesus who identifies with us, who understands all our problems and our struggles because he was fully man. And we come to the God who's able to bring transformation because he is God, Jesus who is God, who died and was risen from the grave. And we share that bread. We're going to receive the wine. All who know and love the Lord, you're invited to come and receive from him. And I want you to pray the prayer. Lord, would you help me to truly become who you want me to be? Would you help me to find my place in this body, whether it's this body here or the body uh, across the city, across the nation? Help me to truly be who you created me to be. Let's just pause for a moment. We're going to bring the bread and wine in a little. Let's just close our eyes. You gathered with your friends. And they'd spent three years trying to get a grip on who you were. They'd seen you 
calm the storm. They'd seen you multiply bread to feed thousands of people. They'd seen you raise up a dead child. They'd seen you bring your friend Lazarus out of the grave after he'd been dead for three days. They'd seen you heal lepers, cast out demons, set people free who are oppressed by sickness and pain and emotional, physical, demonic problems. They'd seen you bring transformation. They'd seen you produce a thousand bottles of wine from some water. And they couldn't fully understand who you were, but they knew you were amazing. And their greatest hope and their greatest longing that you might be the one who had been promised. The branch who was to be the king. The promised branch that was called to be a servant. The promised branch that was called to be a man. And the branch who was divine, who was God himself. And they looked at you and tried to see if you could be the branch. And even when you said, I'm the vine, remain in me, they didn't really understand. And when they saw you as a servant washing their feet, they couldn't understand. And when they saw you as a king riding as a donkey into Jerusalem, they didn't really understand. And as they saw you in all your humanity, touching the leper with your physical hands, the man who was an outcast, they didn't understand. And as they saw you hanging on a cross, broken and seemingly defeated, with a sign over your head that said, King of the Jews, they didn't understand. But Jesus, I thank you that their incomprehension didn't stop you from going to them and calling them deeper into friendship with you and sending them into the world to turn the world on its head. Because you didn't leave them alone, but you sent your Holy Spirit that they would be filled with a knowledge of who you are and filled with your purpose and your power. So God, would you take our frail bodies, our broken sometimes confused temperaments and personalities. Would you help us, frail as we are, to fully become the men and women that you dream of? For you have plans to prosper us, not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future. Whatever our circumstances, whatever our history, whatever problems we may face, you are the God of transformation and your desire is to reveal your nature through us to this world. So heal us where we're broken. Restore us where we've stepped away from your purpose and image. Help us to reflect your glory through our lives. And in the eating of this bread and the drinking of this wine, may we receive you with fresh revelation of you in all your glory as our Lord, our Redeemer, our King, our Sovereign, the Lion and the Lamb, the beginning and the end, bright morning star. From that night when you were with your friends at Passover, remembering the freedom of your people as they escaped from slavery 
And in the rush of that night, they cooked and took their unleavened bread and broke it. And so, Jesus, on that night, remembering your people escaping from Egypt, you took bread. And you gave thanks for it and held it aloft. And you said to your friends, this is my body, whole, but to be broken. And you broke the bread. And you said, feast on this. Take and know that I have been broken. I will be broken for you. So you who are broken can be made whole. Lord, in our brokenness we receive you. Would you heal us? And you took the wine. And you offered it to your friends and said, drink this. Drink this in remembrance of the blood, my blood, which will be shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, we know that though our sins are like scarlet, your blood washes and cleanses us. And as your blood flowed down the cross from your broken body, we remember the blood that was painted over the doorposts in Egypt so the angel of death passed over. And thank you that we who are under your blood, death has no fear for us. Death has lost its sting. You, the Prince of Life, who rose again from the dead, defeated death. And so we, a resurrection Easter people, are alive in you. Feed us, stir us, inspire us. Help us to be more the people you intended as we change from glory to glory for your sake. Amen.